HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, where brunch is being served. My guest today is Jessica Donzi Black, the project director for the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project at the Pew Health Group, part of the Pew Charitable Trusts. Prior to coming to Pew, Jessica served as the National Director of the Healthy Schools Program for the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, which was a joint initiative of the American Heart Association and the William J. Clinton Foundation. Welcome to the program, Jessica. Thanks for hanging out, waiting for us to show up here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Unbelievable problems with the subway today. Um, I just want to say that uh, your bio, which goes on and on, I only read a small fraction of it, makes me totally feel like a loser. I might have to kill you after this show. But in in the meantime, <laughs> um, in the meantime, um, I wanted to first of all thank you very much for joining me today, um, and uh, give us a thumbnail on the project you're working on, the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project, and um, how you are approaching the problems uh, that face childhood nutrition in this country. Sure. Well, the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project is focused like a laser, essentially, on the school nutrition environment. And so what we're, we are really trying to do is make sure that the, all the foods served to kids across the country and all the schools are both safe and healthy. And we're doing that largely by working through um, what the policy opportunities are and then how to support schools in meeting those policies. So help them make the healthier foods that they're being asked to make as well as keep them safe so that all kids can be healthy. Sounds like, a, you know, absolutely the plan. I think every parent in the country should be tuning in and saying, thank you very much. What can we do to further the cause here? Um, most recently, your group and the Obama administration focused on vending machines, which, um, you know, I, I think it's shocking that they're in schools, period. But anyway, vending machines and the opportunities that they pres- present for both good or bad choices in food. Um, so what kinds of snacks would you like to see in vending machines? 
Yeah, well, it's important to note that the United States Department of Agriculture set the original standards for all the foods sold outside of the school meal program, including vending machines, a la carte, et cetera, in the 70s. And we knew different things about nutrition then, but the school meal environment was also really different then in terms of, to your point, there weren't vending machines. So these things weren't really an issue. And so now, you know, USDA is going to be updating those standards. So they really apply based on current knowledge to the current environment. And, and so when we think of that, what we're really looking to do is set minimum standards that are going to make sure that every kid has access to healthy choices. So that means, you know, lowering the sodium, lowering the fat, keeping the calories within reason, general kind of common sense standards that then schools will be able to apply and implement individually based on what their kids' preferences are, et cetera. But all parents can feel comfortable knowing that when they send their kids to school, the only choices they're going to have are those that the parents would be more willing to support. So in other words, Doritos and, uh, you know, cheese puffs are off the table and, um, you know, I don't know, cliff bars are going to be sorted into those <laughs> machines. I mean, well, you know, someone's going to, we'll have to do the math on, on certain products to see sort of what fits in. You know, there's, there's no good or bad necessarily. It's more a matter of, you know, keeping things more in moderation. So with nutrition in general, it's a little tricky because it's not, it's not good food, bad food. It's really about, you know, keeping it within a range of healthy options. So if the calories are reasonable and the fat levels are appropriate and all those things, you know, that's going to make them healthier. Certainly along the way, we'd love it if kids would eat more fruits and vegetables and those things that they really need, too. Do you ever see, uh, for instance, a, sort of an automat concept coming in? Do you remember the, I don't, I don't know if you're old enough to remember automats, but they were like these, you'd put in a quarter and you could get a sandwich or an apple or, you know, a rice pudding <laughs> or something like that. I mean, it seems to me that... Um, that's kind of the way I would want my vending machine thing to go. Because, I mean, a pack of Doritos, a six-ounce thing of Doritos, 260 calories yeah, right there. Yeah, and that's, that's not the ideal. Um, yes, I mean, there actually are vending machines. And there are some schools who have done some pretty creative things where they have vending machines that vend low-fat dairy. They have vending machines that actually vend fruit. Um, it takes, you know, certain levels of refrigeration, and schools have to be able to get that equipment. And so there's going to be some time to make sure we can get schools the support they need to do those things. But those things are certainly a possibility. That's cool. Now, according to a recent New York Times article on the proposed new guidelines from the USDA, a study by the National Academy of Sciences estimates that about $2.3 billion worth of snack foods and beverages are sold annually in schools nationwide. Now, does that figure only represent the sales from those vending machines, or does it also include bake sales, candy drives, and stuff like that, which a lot of schools use for, um, you know, fundraising? Right. No, that's the big number. So it's it's vending machines. It's a la carte, which is a huge seller in schools. It's school stores, which some schools have. So it's it's all of those revenue sources combined. And what percentage do you think? I mean, do you know this figure? I know it's kind of a long shot here, but do you know the percentage of the snack industry's annual revenue? Um, what does that represent for their bottom line if this if this particular um, you know sales figure changes up? You know, I don't know exactly what, what that impact would be on them. I, you know, a lot of the companies have been supportive of sort of setting these standards and helping to serve healthier things and have already started moving in that direction. So in some cases, you know, it's just a matter of changing out to some extent what products are available to kids. And, and the other side is to keep in mind that although that's clearly a lot of sales that happen in the schools, that in lieu of kids buying the unhealthy snacks, 
there's still opportunity for them to buy healthy things in schools, be that actually to get a meal, which is balanced and maybe a better option for them, or to get some healthier snack options. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily trading out revenue per se, but rather just replacing where it's coming from. And is the snack food industry in general and the beverage industry, are they, are they complying? Are they interested in working with you or are they setting up a lot of roadblocks along the way? I mean, uh, you know, just going back to that, that big, um, brouhaha last November when, um, when Congress decided to establish potato, you know, fried French fries and pizza right, as, right. As, veg, as in the vegetable group. I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of pushback from the industry. What's your sense of that? Yeah, the landscape is definitely mixed, but I think the good news is that there are lots of members of the industry that are actually really supportive and have already made commitments to making progress. So, you know, for instance, you had mentioned that in my resume that I used to work with the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, and the Alliance had worked with a lot of both the snack food manufacturers and beverage manufacturers to adopt standards and to have them adopt standards that a lot of them have voluntarily agreed to do. And so it set the stage for sort of being able to have more widespread standards. Certainly, not all schools have adopted those standards. You know, not all have moved to healthier changes, and that's why now's a really good opportunity to get some minimum standards out there that everybody can follow. And then those companies that are already moving in that direction can continue to do that with a broader range of schools, and those companies that maybe were a little bit more resistant will, you know, have the opportunity to come along and, and adapt accordingly. Um, let's talk about uh, beverages for a second, because I know that kids drink a lot of juice, soda, etc. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a, a great outcry when Snapple was introduced as the beverage of choice in vending <laughs> machines in the, really across the United States. Um, I have a quote here from uh, Christopher Gindelsberger, Director of Communications for the American Beverage Association, whose members include Coca-Cola and Pepsi. And he said, our members, oh dear, I can barely read this, uh, have voluntarily reduced the calories in uh, some of their products by 88% and have stopped offering full-calorie soft drinks in school vending machines. So what does that mean exactly? Are they swapping out juice for soda? Um, and isn't juice just as bad in terms of calories and, you know, empty calories? Yeah, so what the, the beverage companies agreed to, the ABA and their members, agreed several years ago to stop marketing and selling full sugar, for full sugar, sugar-sweetened beverages directly to school. So that means regular sodas and things that were of the highest caloric density. And so to the extent that those beverages are purchased directly from the companies, that's something they no longer send to schools. And that did have a really major impact on the amount of sugar-sweetened beverages sent to schools, which, is, which are the beverages that are most closely linked to a lot of the health concerns we have today between childhood obesity and the, the issues associated with that, type 2 diabetes, as well as things like dental cavities, which are yeah. strongly linked. So, so it, it did have a big impact on that. In terms of, you know, what else then, some of what they're selling a lot of is water, which is great. We highly encourage that. You know, there's also some less caloric drinks so that the total amount of calories kids are getting is less, but there's still maybe some sugar involved. And then things like juice and low-fat dairy in reasonable portions or portions appropriate and although calorically some of those drinks may be similar to purely sugar-sweetened beverages, I think the big difference is they also offer some level of nutrition that mm-hmm. is, you know, that's important for kids. So kids need, you know, let's say low-fat dairy products for the purposes of calcium and potassium and some other things. So some calories make sense. It's always, you know, as a dietitian, I always like to think of it as sort of that cost-benefit ratio, right? So what am I getting for my calories as though it were a budget? So if I'm spending 100 calories on something, I should be getting something beneficial. And I think in some of the products, the, the healthier products, that's what we see is sort of reasonably reduced calories plus 
some you know, natural nutrition benefit. And what we try to reduce are those things that are just pure calories without any nutrition benefit associated with them. Sure, that makes total sense. Um, so you're saying that the, you've, these these changes have already started. You're seeing an impact on the population already in terms of, of kids um, slimming down, because that certainly isn't something that you're reading in the newspaper. Well, you know, in terms of your specific um, area of the country, there was really good news that came out of New York this just this past couple of months um, that looked at how there actually has been a 5% decrease in childhood obesity in New York City. And I think it gives us great hope that a lot of these interventions, a lot of these changes could be really beneficial. I mean, we, we obviously need to implement in more places and study more places, but New York is a place that has made some pretty significant changes in both the school environment and then in the early childhood environment. And what we're hoping we're seeing is sort of the, re- the positives of that coming forward. So I think, I think there is great hope that a lot of these changes are going to make a difference. The challenge with science is that some of that data gets a little bit delayed. So it'll be a few more years before we have more hard data from more places. Um, But so far, the results are really encouraging. And when you get results like this, do you then funnel that information into Congress, uh, you know, in terms of like fighting for better aspects of the farm farm bill and so forth to encourage uh, support in Congress for these kinds of changes? Absolutely. I mean, our focus is both, you know, getting the word out to the broader public that can use it, and then also making sure the word is channeled to the appropriate folks here in Washington, Congress included, you know, so when they're looking at appropriations and how we're allocating resources, that they're thinking about what of these things are going to be beneficial. And then certainly also when they're looking at um, the bigger legislation, you know, most specifically, we work on the Child Nutrition Act, which oversees school meals, school breakfast, school lunch, after school, as well as sort of this snack food environment. Um, And so it's important for them, too, to have the science so that they can make the the more scientifically appropriate decisions. Um, We're going to take a break in a second, but I just have one more question for this thing. How many years has it taken to start, uh, you know, this groundswell? I mean, I feel like this has been something that you, you know, your groups and the, and your career clearly indicates that this has been an ongoing um, effort uh, on the part of many organizations. And yet it is only just now in the last, I'd say two or three years um, arriving at a point where the public is really sort of getting galvanized about it, where school systems are making those changes. What's the history of this? How long has it taken to really get this rolling? Uh, those who have advocated for this a long time will say that probably over 10 years for sure, you know, some, some have saw this writing on the wall and certainly advocated longer for that, longer than that. But when, you know, the bigger public health organizations and other organizations started to come together to figure out how we were going to reverse this trend we were seeing in chronic disease in young children, it, it was probably the early 2000s. And so we're now at a point where there is broader public support, there's, there's broader media attention, there's more people involved, which really brings us to an exciting tipping point for making a difference and and making sure we end up in the place we need to be. That sounds great. Um, Jack, we're going to take a short sponsor break. Jessica, stay on the line. We're going to just run a little commercial for our favorite sponsor, and we'll be right back with Jessica Donzi-Black from the Pew Charitable Trust. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Welcome back to Straight 
No Chaser. <laughs> I wasn't sure I was on there or not, Jack. Um, welcome back. Uh, this is your host, Katie Kiefer, speaking. And on the line with me is Jessica Donzi Black, the project director for the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project, part of the Pew Health Group in the Pew Charitable Trust. So, Jessica, let's talk a little bit more about some of the programs that have changed. Um, in the wake of uh, the, the new guidelines that came through the USDA, you issued a statement recently in response to them finalizing healthy school meal standards. And here is a quote from that statement. Indeed, thousands of schools already are serving healthier meals and can demonstrate successful approaches. So can you describe what some of those successful approaches are, given that so many schools lack basic infrastructure for cooking or even as we talked about having refrigerated vending machines? Sure. Yes. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from schools that got ahead of this issue, either because they wanted to get recognition from U.S. Healthier School Challenge or just because they saw that this, you know, was what they wanted to do. And so some of the things that schools have done that have really helped along the way in terms of improving meals is making sure that they involve a broader breadth of people in setting up those standards. So that might be taste testing with students or even inviting students to be in on the menu planning. Also inviting parents into the mix. Parents care a lot about what their kids are eating and they want there to be healthier things in schools. So by growing that support more broadly in their community, that often allows them to execute more effectively keeps kids interested in the menus even if they're changing and also allows them to garner some support from the community if they do need to upgrade infrastructure or change out equipment or do things in order to accommodate. So that's a really big piece of the puzzle. The other piece is, you know, drawing on support where they can. USDA offers some great training and technical assistance that that the food service directors and their staff can draw upon even online so that it's more accessible excuse me, accessible to people. Um, there's a great program called Chefs Move in Schools or Chefs Move to Schools. And in fact, there's going to be an opportunity for folks who are interested in that or want to learn more or train on that coming up April 1st, the International Association of Culinary Professionals and the Culinary Trust are together offering a full-day workshop um, that is indeed available and open to the public on April 1st. So if folks go to the culinarytrust.org website, they can find out more about that and learn how, you know, by incorporating some of the knowledge and expertise of chefs into the process and into the schools, that too has helped some schools identify foods that kids enjoy, stay within their budget, and serve things effectively. Well, we've had uh, Nancy um, Easton on a couple of times for Wellness in the Schools. She started that program here in New York. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with her. And she worked with Bill Telepan, whose kid uh, Leah is in the <clears throat> excuse me in the public school system. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things, because I interviewed Bill about this like three years ago, and one of the interesting things that he said, and maybe this has changed, is that there was an enormous amount of pushback from the actual culinary staff in the schools. Like they really had a hard time accepting that their job wasn't just going to be rolling out the nuggets onto the sheet pan. Mm-hmm. And putting it in the oven, and that it's been a, that you know as much as anything else, that has been one of the most challenging aspects of changing the you know the culture of food in public school systems. Um, so you know your organization and this event at the IACP, I hope, will go a long way towards um, towards improving that kind of communication. Um, how much, if any, additional federal funding will you know will do you think that you'll be able to get, um, or that schools will be able to get to to make those infrastructural changes and to supply training opportunities for people who are already working in school cafeterias. This is something we've been working really diligently on the past couple of years to make sure that schools do have the support they need to implement these changes and to, and to make the changes they want. In the what's called the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act that passed last December that, that actually encouraged USDA to move forward with a lot of these standards up 
um, upgrades and changes, there actually was increased funding for the school meal itself. So every school is getting an additional six cents per meal, which doesn't sound like much if you're home cooking for five, um, but when you take at times, you know, a thousand, fifty thousand, et cetera, that starts to be real money for schools. So that's a really important change. They are going to have some more resources. And then in addition to that, there's additional money set aside that will go to the state. It's about $50 million a year, each year for two years, that'll go, that'll be distributed at the state level that will be in place for the states to then do additional training and technical assistance and also help with sort of the administration of things. So although there's been a lot of talk about the potential cost burden, it's important to know that some of those resources have been allocated. But beyond that, one of the things that our program's really working for continuously is making sure we have adequate support for schools in additional training and technical assistance, but also in that infrastructure and equipment piece. And when the stimulus funds were made available, there was $100 million made available for schools to do school food service infrastructure, mostly equipment purchasing to help them serve healthier meals. And in the limited time that the United States Department of Agriculture was able to leave the application window open, they got $639 million of requested of requests from the state. So we know even in that tiny window, there's a demonstrated $539 million gap. Um, And that's something we're working hard to get Congress to address on an ongoing basis in future appropriations. This year, we were excited to see that um, USDA included $35 million in their proposed budget for a competitive equipment grants to start cutting into this a bit. But now we, you know, we need Congress to support that and put that in the real budget so that it actually happens. Well, um, that leads me to my next question. Because <laughs> if Congress won't support better nutrition, <laughs> how will programs like yours succeed in changing all these infrastructures and increasing the meal stipend? Because, I mean, even the sixth sense, and I recognize that it is, it it was certainly a victory. um, But I remember, you know, talking to Nancy and Bill um, way back when, and and, um, they were looking for an allocation of like $1.28 per meal. And I think that at that particular moment, the the bar was at 94 cents. So, I mean, that's still, even even with the extra six cents, that's still a gap of 28 cents per meal to really get, um, you know, fresh, more fresh foods and hopefully more local foods uh, to help local economies. Um, So do you think Congress is going to keep on um, throwing up these roadblocks or are they going to start recognizing that using better quality foods, using more local foods as part of your program is good for the national economy as well as good for the children's health? Yeah, I think despite sort of the the hubbub this this fall, as we all uh, witnessed, in general, Congress is actually really supportive of healthy nutrition. And although, you know, it may not seem that way when we have sort of these these sort of off tangential events happen, you know, overall, when we look historically, Congress has been really supportive of child nutrition. You know, typically, even last December, when the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act passed, it passed by unanimous consent in the Senate. I mean, there was there was no opposition to the concept of moving this forward. And so I think, and even this fall, when we look at the final standards that were finalized by USDA, despite sort of a little bit of congressional action, the core of what was finalized is still really strong, and it's really good in terms of moving forward. It's more fruits and vegetables and more whole grains and less fat and less sodium and will, in fact, lead to healthier meals for kids across the country. So I do think the vast majority of folks in Congress recognize this important. They want kids to be healthy. We know from polls that the the vast majority of parents want this. They want kids to have access to healthy foods. and, And those things can come together you know, to lead to healthier things. Always, you know, budgets are tricky. There's a lot of important priorities right now. And so I think 
we need to be vigilant in continuing to tell this important story and move it forward. But I think we can actually expect a lot of support from the majority of folks in Congress in terms of figuring out how to get this done and how to get it done efficiently. Well, it does make sense in terms of the national well-being going forward. I mean, not just because of the obesity issues, but what, isn't it true that the school lunch program was was founded um, earlier in the century because um, the guys who were, you know, being conscripted into the army for World War II were coming in? They were basically malnourished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so it, the, there's the a long program, history. Yeah, it was started in the late 40s yeah. because they were noticing the malnutrition issues and they decided we needed to make sure that they were, you know, that kids were healthy enough to defend our country. And that remains the case today. Well, actually, there was an interesting piece uh, recently in the paper um, about Michelle Obama teaming up with the Department of Defense mm-hmm. because the guys who are coming into the, the armed forces right now are grossly overweight and many of them cannot make it through boot camp. So, you know, there's yeah. like there there are so many levels on which this is an important uh, piece of legislation or an important initiative to support and really push. Now, I'm, we're coming towards the end of our, our our program time here, believe it or not. I hope you'll come mm-hmm. back. Um, but you know, you mentioned earlier that you'd had kids, you know, as focus groups. So, but what about the kids? I mean, Congress and and other interested parties, and I've read this in many newspaper articles, have suggested that kids just throw away their apples. They won't eat the better foods. They're not interested in vegetables. They only want to eat pizza. Where does that leave you guys when it comes to calibrating, you know, the kids' tastes and expectations? I mean, how do you, um, you know, I think that's to a large extent true, especially for kids who are not accustomed to having, um, you know, home-cooked meals at the very least. How do you how do you get them interested besides having a little community garden or something like that in in eating something that is not necessarily salt and sugar and fat laden, which, of course, we all know is absolutely delicious and irresistible. Right. Well, as any parent will tell you, you know, this getting kids to eat healthy foods is a constant challenge, but is a worthy challenge. And, you know, given the option between something really healthy, like a piece of fruit or a vegetable and something really unhealthy, like you described, you know, most kids are going to choose the unhealthy thing, but in an environment where they have exposure to choices, but only healthy choices, many times they will make a choice within those healthy options. I think part of what we need to do is is think about how we roll this out. And schools that have been successful have found, like I said earlier, like involving students in the decision-making, giving them an opportunity to taste test. Kids are naturally neophobic. They're, they don't like new things. They don't like change. Adults probably aren't much different. So if we, if we introduce it to them kind of slowly over time, if we help expose them to things, if we allow them to have a taste for free, we can can engage them in eating differently. And also, you know, if all the choices are healthy choices, they still seem, feel empowered to make choices, but there's no such thing as a bad choice. And I think as, as a parent, that's what we want the world to look like, or at least the world that we provide to our kids. And certainly that same level of healthy options should be what the schools provide so that kids can make, you know, choices are easy all day long at school because they're all good options. I think that sounds very worthy. I'm loving you, Jessica. <laughs> Well, I'm, 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 I, I want to just like wrap up here just to make sure that people know, uh, you know, all about your website, all about the, the, um, the project that you're directing, how they can stay on top of this. And, and if there's anything they can do in terms of lobbying Congress or letting their, you know, local representatives know that this is something that they care about and that they want their tax dollars invested in. So, um, do you want to give us a little, um, thumbnail of like how to, how to stay on top of this and, and, and even push it through in your own school districts? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is we would encourage everyone to come to www.healthyschoolfoodsnow.org and to 
register with us. So if you hit the take action button, it'll give us an opportunity to get your name and email, and then we can keep you in the loop as things move forward. I promise it's not overwhelming. It's a monthly newsletter that updates you on sort of what's happening at the national level, but also some ideas and tips and action and great stories that are happening at the state or local level to show how this is really a team effort. You know, at sort of all levels are working together. And then that will also give you the opportunity to take action when specific things come up. So the next big thing out of the gate is we will expect USDA or the United States Department of Agriculture to propose these, you know, updated minimum nutrition standards that are going to cover everything outside of the school meal in schools. So your vending machines, your a la carte, et cetera. And the way that process works is the USDA puts those, what they think they're going to do out there. And then for about 90 days, everyone, organizations, individuals, parents, non-parents, grandparents, everybody has the opportunity to offer feedback to USDA. And so we would encourage all folks to do that, either just to show their support and say we think this is awesome, or if they want things to be different for some reason, to offer that as well. And if you're on our list, we certainly will keep you informed of when that process is and even make it really easy for you to submit your comments. So again, it's healthyschoolfoodsnow.org. And come visit us and sign up, and we would love to keep you in the loop. I'm going to do it as soon as I get off the air. Awesome. (laughs) No, but that's really inspiring. And I think it's really great for people to know that they do have an opportunity to weigh in with their own comments and their own, uh, you know, desires about what they want to see in their school menus. I mean, it's it's a big part of our our national budget. It's a big part of our, our, you know, future going forward. And um, and people should, you know, the 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 idea that that we should just let everybody else control what we put in our bodies is something that you know is just such an outdated concept I mean it was great when uh, when women started entering the workforce and, and suddenly Swanson's frozen dinners became like a really cool thing but you know we've seen what that's done for us when you let other people make choices about your food um, you wind up in the situation that we are now where people are just out of control portion size is out of control and calorie intake is out of control so um, this has just been a fantastic interview Jessica thank you ever so much I hope you'll come back I'd love to sort of keep this on a kind of semi-regular basis and you can give us an update about what's happening. Would you be willing to do that? Fantastic. So again, thank you very much to Jessica Donzie Black, who is the project director for the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods at the Pew Health Group and the Pew Charitable Trust. Thanks so much to my uh, knight in shining armor, Jack, who rescued me from the corner of Brooklyn streets. And I'll see you next week with with a new incarnation of the Brooklyn Grange. Take care, folks. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.